0: When I was a boy, it seems like every time I speak to you, I start out with when I was a boy. (laughs) But when I was a boy, I learned a lot of religious words early on. It was from the time that I could spell out words phonetically that mom kept me busy during sermons with a piece of paper and a pencil. When I heard a word I didn't understand, I was supposed to write it out as best I could. And then when we got home, she or dad would go over my list with me so I could learn what those words meant. Now many years later, I realized there was more to that than just a vocabulary lesson. And perhaps that was what led to me being baptized by immersion later on when I was nine. When I was an adult, I got rebaptized And you know what, it did not take either time. (laughs) There's one thing I've come to learn in recent years, and that's that much of the language that is used by modern Christians was actually borrowed and twisted either on purpose or inadvertently by the early church to mean things that had nothing to do with the original meanings. Other theological words have lost their original meanings as society has changed, and those words have become irrelevant. For example, take words like miracle and cross. Now, as people have gained a better understanding of physics and how the world works and medicine, it's become more difficult for us to understand the original meaning of the word miracle. We really don't know what happened exactly when a miracle was performed by a first century healer. And as societies have replaced old methods of capital punishment with new methods that are just as lethal, it's become hard to identify with the original stigma of the word cross. Because those words and the contexts don't translate to modern times, it's hard to express truths and extract meanings that once upon a time were easier to articulate many of us you use have sort of given up on a lot of the old christian ideas and concepts we may assume that they're outdated and we may just drop concepts that no longer fit our picture of the world but i'd like to ask you this morning to really stretch yourself and open up your mind and consider some original meanings and original context of certain words that we may not be aware of. Perhaps you will find that some of those words and concepts are worth reclaiming. Or perhaps where some words just seem not to work anymore, you can substitute other words that will help you rearticulate the original concept. Now, I already mentioned the word cross in first corinthians paul refers to the cross as scandalous and that's as translated in four common modern english translations now scandalous the cross that seems pretty harsh why scandalous because in the greco-roman world getting crucified was absolutely the worst most humiliating thing that could possibly happen to you Now, today we think of crucifixion as horrible because of the intense physical pain, but then it was really more of a social thing. Sure, it was painful, but in the first century, people dreaded the shame of crucifixion even more than the pain of it. Crucifixion was reserved for outcasts, slaves, and common criminals, and if you ended up being crucified, that became your entire life legacy for all time. That person was crucified. You were such a wretched person if you were crucified that you didn't even deserve to exist. But still today, cross has lost a lot of its original punch. Crosses make nice jewelry now. One of our co-pastors at the Liberal Presbyterian Church where I am doing my seminary internship, that pastor has suggested taking down the 30-foot concrete cross in front of their sanctuary he says that they should replace it with a lynching tree that may sound shocking but i think and i agree with him that a lynching tree makes a lot more meaningful modern metaphor than something that hasn't been used for capital punishment for many years there's another phrase from the new testament this one i contend this phrase didn't just slide into cultural irrelevance like the last one but This phrase I believe was stolen by the church fathers, kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is at hand is all over at least two of the gospels. I grew up thinking of kingdom of heaven as some event out there in the future, some universal utopia, not today, but out there at some indeterminate point of time that's gonna happen then. Now this raises some really serious logical and ethical questions like, if Jesus is really sitting up there with the power to put everything to rights right now, then what is he waiting for? And why didn't he do it here when he was why didn't he do it when he was here the first time? But when you take all of the scriptures together, it's clear that the kingdom of heaven being at hand meant not coming soon, but more like it's here right now. Let's start with the Gospel of Thomas, which was dug up in the Egyptian desert in 1945 after being lost for 1,600 years. The Gospel of Thomas may have been written within 20 years of Jesus' crucifixion, and if that is right, it predates all of the books in the New Testament. Now here's what Thomas wrote about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom is inside of you and it is outside of you. And he wrote, it will not come by waiting for it. It will not be a matter of saying here it is or there it is. Rather, the kingdom of the Father is spread out upon the earth and you do not see it. Repeat that. The kingdom is spread out on the earth and you do not see it. Even Luke, which book actually did make it into the Christian canon, reports Jesus as saying the kingdom is not coming with things that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is or there it is. For in fact, the kingdom of God is among you. And an equivalent translation of the Greek is, the kingdom is within you or between you. Speaking of Jesus of Nazareth, who's supposed to have said that, there's another place that I think that we've been sold a bill of goods about the nature of his ministry and his goal as a public figure. For 200 years... Not 2,000, but for the last 200, theologians have been trying to figure out from ancient texts and archaeology what the historical Jesus actually did and said and taught. This historical Jesus debate has gone through at least three reincarnations, or perhaps I should say resurrections, and it's still going strong. Many scholars today conclude that looking for the historical Jesus is a lot like looking in the mirror. You really see what you're interested in, and I'm guilty. I found confirmation of this happening in two books that I read this summer. First, Jesus the Misunderstood Jew by Amy Jill Levine reminds us that Jesus was first and foremost a Jew in first century Galilee. As Bishop Desmond Tutu wrote, Jesus was not a Christian. Amy Jill Levine, who wrote Jesus, the Misunderstood Jew, seeks to understand from her rather unusual position as a Jewish theological scholar who specializes in the Christian New Testament, she seeks to understand how first century Jews would have heard Jesus by running his words as reported by the gospel through the filter of Jewish rabbinical writings. And her work comes across as a fascinating portrayal of how easily we can be led into anti-Semitic interpretations of the Gospels by blindly following the first-hand interpretations of their authors. Now, this summer I also read The Ironsmith by Nicholas Guild, who some of you may know as the significant other of our own Cynthia Wood. Nicholas Guild in The Ironsmith, this is the first novel I've read in years, and it's and I loved it. It's a fictionalized account of the ministry and death of Jesus told through the eyes of his invented cousin, invented by the author, an ironsmith named Noah. The value of the ironsmith for me is that it totally recast this Jesus character that I had still had a lot of mental baggage with, and it reframed that character into a playful, funny, questioning person, who really cares deeply about other human beings and who was just trying to find his own purpose in the world, just like everybody else. This is an account that is fictionalized, sure, but it's entirely consistent, not with the letter of the words of the gospel, but with it's consistent with human nature and with how people can be expected to respond when put into extreme situations. So based on these examples of these two published works, and there are libraries full of others, I claim the right to define my own historical Jesus as behooves my spiritual faith and practice. And what I see when I look at the the texts and at the historical context is a Jesus who was preaching not about a military uprising, that would have been totally unrealistic, but rather a Jesus who was preaching about social justice ideals, about the scandalous notion that everyone deserves three square meals and a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. He was preaching that if if the people could launch a revolution of individual spirits and interpersonal community, they would have enough food and fish to go around, no matter what the Romans and the civil religious authorities did. That was why... The kingdom of heaven is within you and among you and between you. It wasn't a global utopian kingdom or an afterlife where everything was going to be put to right in the sweet by and by. The kingdom of heaven is beloved community. It's right here, it's right now in this room in the loving relationships between us and all we have to do is open our eyes and just see it. You might have noticed a few minutes ago I threw out a word talking about resurrecting truths and concepts. That use of the word resurrect is a non-Easterish, secular way of using the word, and we do that in modern English today. Bernard Brandon Scott, in his book, The Trouble with Resurrection, I like that book, shows that until the second century BCE, before the Christian area, before the common area, excuse me, it's not a Christian, it's a common, before the common area, BCE, I'll get that right someday. In this book, he shows that until then, 200 years BCE, resurrection was a Greek secular word that was never yet used in a religious sense. Resurrection, in our vocabulary, is not a translation, it's a transliteration. Translated, it means to bring back into use something that had been lost, it means something like restore, revive, maybe recycle. Resurrection was first used as a religious metaphor in the book of Daniel in a corporate and not an individual sense, 200 years BCE. Daniel's author claimed that God will vindicate the martyrs by raising them up from the dead. These martyrs were the people who died in the revolution of 165 BCE the author of Daniel was not saying that anything physical or supernatural was going to happen to their cold, dead bodies. Rather, he was saying that their communal ideas, ideals, and truths would be resurrected and live on in the Jewish culture. And that resurrection has been commemorated by the Jewish Festival of Lights every December to this day. This community meaning of resurrection was verified in, for us, it was verified, it makes sense, in light of 2nd Maccabees, written about 150 B.C.E., which lauded Daniel as a visionary of cultural resurrection of the Jewish nation and religion, which ended up lasting for another 100 years in the, in the last century of freedom before this one, of the Jewish nation, uh, which lasted up until the Romans arrived about 100 years later. Now, for the next century and a half after that, Religious resurrection remained a corporate metaphor. Scott maintains that resurrection was never applied individually or in a physical way until about 80 or 90 CE, about 50 years after the lynching of Nazareth when the gospels were put down. He writes that by redefining resurrection, the church literalized it. These are his words. He says the church literalized, narrowed, and constricted the meaning of resurrection. Turned it into a creedal belief, and in the process forfeited resurrection's great cultural claim and idealistic hope. As an example of the value of the metaphor of rebirth, new life, and resurrection today, Scott turns to the life and work of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Paraphrasing Scott, Martin Luther King was a prophet, he was vilified and persecuted. Just as much as Jesus, King was a martyr. But Jesus was supposedly raised from the dead, and not Martin Luther King. Or is that true? <clears throat> In the original sense of resurrection, Martin Luther King was raised from the dead. His prophetic words and martyrdom helped raise a nation to a new standard of justice. What did I hear? A couple dozen Nazis and 40,000 anti-fascist yesterday in Boston. Look at the numbers. He goes on, he says, King exemplifies a resurrection in which all of the people together will ultimately experience the truth, the victory of truth over justice. Now, obviously, in light of what I just referred to, the battle is not finished. The resurrection, the revival, is an ongoing process. It's up to us to incorporately resurrect the ideals of Amos, who stood up against agribusiness in Israel in 750 BCE. It's up to us to corporately resurrect in our own lives social justice martyrs from Jesus of Nazareth to Martin Luther King. It's up to us to prepare ourselves should the need arise to lay down our lives for what is just and right for our corporate heirs. So what can we do with this today then? As we conclude this time together, I'd like to consider one other word that has been stolen, and that is the word conservative. Reverend William J. Barber the, the III points out that conservative today is claimed by many groups that bear no resemblance to a people who are called to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. He points out, that the religious liberals who act for social justice are not following the ethical commands of the they are following the, the the religious liberals who act for social justice are following the commands of the scriptures ethically much more closely than the religious fundamentalist. He points out that many religious conservatives are actually the ones who are using individual freedom of interpretation with an absolute zero of critical thinking that they start with the scriptures and arrive at a philosophy of a whimsical God that loves well-off Americans and is indifferent to everybody else. But the truth is this. The religious people who during slavery in America claimed scriptural support for their positions, those were not the true conservatives. The religious right, who accused Dr. King of not acting like a preacher, were not true conservatives. Evangelical Christians who look the other way when sexism and misogyny rears its ugly head and when the stranger is turned away at our gates and when the politics of fear and division are used to steal money from science and education and spend it on bombs, those are not true conservatives. And people who advocate white supremacy and romanticize Confederate history, people who commit terrorism in the name of those things like we saw early last week, And people at the highest levels of our civil government who refuse to explicitly denounce those positions and activities, those are not true conservatives. Parts of history that are indefensible to conserve are in biblical terms the most liberal parts of history. And to call them conservative is to co-opt the word. And I'm not preaching partisan politics in the pulpit. Dr. King reminded us that we must continually stand up to the evil trinity of racism, classism, and militarism. And when you're talking about right and wrong, that's not politics, that's ethics. The ethical fact is that the religious right and center in this country are not the true conservatives. They are, in fact, religious liberals who have abandoned their own scriptures in the pursuit of what is comfortable and expedient. When we so-called liberals reclaim the original meaning of the word and when we live up to it, it turns out that we are the true conservatives. Some years ago, I began to hear an interesting word coming from the LGBTQ community. The acronym LGBT turned into LGBTQ, where Q stands for queer or questioning. And at first, for gay and lesbian people to claim the word queer was surprising to me because when I was a kid, queer was an epithet, but now people are claiming that word, taking pride in it, and throwing it back in the face of people who once used it as an epithet. Now, I'm not asking all of you to go out from here this morning and start calling yourselves conservatives in public without explanation, (laughs) but you sound relieved. Understanding, however, the true meaning of all the words we've discussed this morning, and you can make a list that long of others, That understanding that provides us fodder for conversation with others and spiritual assurance for ourselves as we seek to protect and expand the kingdom of heaven, this beloved community of which we are already a part. Like LGBTQs, we can stand up, and reclaim language that has been stolen from us. This vocabulary is rightfully ours. When it's stolen and misappropriated, it ill-serves the principles that we stand for. So in my own way, I pray. Let's take our language back. Amen, blessed be, and let it be so. Thank you, Bob.